Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. As soon as it's possible that you will have an interview loop that is not exactly the same people that's been on every other interview loop, you should consider scaling your processes. You want to think of three things. One is efficiency. So are you valuing everybody's time? Next is, are you able to hire for the profile that you want? And the last thing is the candidate experience. And welcome to the Engineering Leadership Podcast, brought to you by ELC, the Engineering Leadership Community. I'm Jerry Lee, founder of ELC. And I'm Patrick Gallagher, and we're your hosts. Our show shares the most critical perspectives, habits, and examples of great software engineering leaders to help evolve leadership in the tech industry. So here you are. You're probably growing really fast, and you're trying to figure out how to balance between doing things that are good enough then figuring out how to optimize and scale your hiring process to be more effective. So the big question is, how do you design a hiring process that can scale as you grow? Where are the best places to spend your time, effort, and budget? Vinitra Varadharajan, Head of Platform Engineering at Airtable, Kat Miller, VP of Engineering at Flatiron Health, and Ken He, Senior Director of Engineering at LiveRamp, are here to help. They share early signs that tell you that it's time to optimize and scale your hiring process, tactics to help you create a consistent hiring bar, their thoughts on engineering rubrics and different interview panel structures, plus they share key metrics to measure efficiency in your process and important feedback loops that you should have throughout your entire hiring process. Enjoy our conversation with Vinitra Varadharajan, Kat Miller, and Ken He. Welcome, everybody. Thanks for coming. How are you? Hello. Thanks for having me. Awesome. We'll, we'll take it away. The floor is yours and dive on in, King. Yeah, sure. Of course. I think when we talk about hiring and scaling and optimizing, as engineers, we'll first ask, okay, what is the current scale, right? So Vinitha and Catherine, could you give us like some sense of like what is the size of your engineering team at your current company right now? Sure. Airtable is currently at 120 engineers and a significant portion, about 40 to 50% of that was hired during this remote time the past year? We're about 300 engineers, roughly, and we did have a, a period of scaling where we were doubling every year for a number of years. All right, so for 120 engineers, I'm curious about what does the hiring process look like? What are the stages and sessions that you have? Yeah, so we have a great recruiting team who we partner with. And so we have sources who help with the sourcing, then we do some pitch calls to understand the candidate better, and sometimes as an engineering manager. Next is a phone screen or a take-home exercise, depending on what the candidates prefer. And then there's the on-site. And sometimes we do, especially in this time of everyone being remote, we are also able to support two-day on-sites. So you can split your full round. So yeah, and then it's the... it's. A debrief and offer and sell calls. Got it. What about you, Catherine? 
Yeah, it's really similar. I'd say that we typically only do sales calls for sort of senior candidates because at a high volume, it can be quite overwhelming, but very similar process, including kind of splitting up the, the evals potentially and doing uh, reverse interviews after we've extended an offer. Got it, got it. So generally speaking, we want to avoid premature optimization. So what are some of the early signs that indicates, oh, it is time to optimize, or oh, it is time to scale, the current process does not work for us? Yeah, I can take a stab at that. So the way I think about hiring process, and like especially when it comes to scaling hiring process, is that you want to think of three things. One is efficiency. So are you valuing everybody's time, the interviewers, the recruiters, and most importantly, the candidate's time. Next is, are you able to hire for the profile that you want? And the last thing is the candidate experience. So when you think about all of this, so when you start to get a sense of one of these things is not fitting, then that's kind of like a signal. But to break it down a little bit, typically, you know, of course, if your high needs go up by an order of magnitude, then that's obviously the first sign. Uh, if interview load is high and you get complaints from your interviewers, then that's another. And the most poignant is that you're unable to close the recs in time. While previously you were able to close your recs and, and it, it, you didn't have to think too much of the process and it worked for you, but now suddenly your backlog is pretty high and that's your signal. I'm going to argue maybe a little bit more extreme position, which is I think there's actually no time that premature optimization is possible here. Or to say it another way, as soon as it's possible that you will have an interview loop that is not exactly the same people that's been on every other interview loop, you should consider scaling your processes. And I think that because you start to immediately get inconsistencies in the way that you've built out your process, and I don't think you have to do all of the possible scaling things right away. But as soon as it's not just you and your founding friends doing the interviews, I think it's time to start putting process in place and building out what the scaffolding for your structure will look like. Right. I do think that consistency is like something very important, right? Like once we do have like 20 interviewers or 50 engineer interviewers in, in the interview process, and how do we make sure that different inter interviewer panels like calibrate with each other and hold the same hiring bar for the, for the candidates that go through the pipeline? So, Catherine, I'm wondering if you have like some particular like tips and tricks or like how do you make sure the bar is the same? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a number of tactics here. So the first is really to have structured interviews. So the more that your interview itself is structured, the questions are standardized and your competencies are clear. Now you at least have a situation where your interviewers are at least trying to interview for the same thing. And now you might just have a calibration issue. Part of what you can do for calibration is make sure that people are shadowing, reverse shadowing on interviews before you set them loose in the wild by themselves. And then something that really helped us, especially in the early days, was having a, a hiring committee where people actually sat around a table and discussed every candidate. So there is still obviously a hiring manager making the decision, but particularly when you're thinking about being in that maybe 15 to 20 engineer category, it means that every engineer is going to hear a lot of that discussion and get kind of calibrated even just by hearing what that conversation is and the thoughts that the hiring manager expresses. So I think those are three kind of easy techniques to start helping on this process. Uh, Vinitha, do you have anything to add here? What about your process there? Yeah, a lot of similar things. I think what Kath was referring to are like debriefs where the engineers are involved. And then there's a separate hiring committee. One, one of the things that we do at Airtable is that we do write down the arguments for why we should hire an engineer. 
And also I, the most important part in that is the leveling. So assuming you do already have levels and have, you know, internal strata within the engineering organization, then thinking about who fits under what level is an extremely important and nuanced discussion. And so being able to write it out and of course, you're going to be able to standardize that as you get many more data points, but having that written down is a really useful exercise. Yeah, I completely agree with you. So I think the engineering library is something that like could be used for many different purposes within the organization. But I'm I'm wondering if you implement some sort of a scorecard, like candidate scorecard rubric, and they say, oh, for this particular session, we are assessing this like five or six different traits. And for those traits, like what does good mean? What does bad mean? Like just curious about like, does is that, do you do those rubrics and does that help? I think it's essential. I think those rubrics evolve over time. So they've gotten, definitely gotten more, more rigorous over time. But I think that when I talk about competencies, that's a lot of what I mean. Like this is what we're looking for. This is what algorithms, doing well at algorithms means or doing well at problem solving means. Here are the things that we're looking for. Here are the things we're not. And for our technical questions, we also break down sort of how much progress is good, how, you know, what kind of hinting is acceptable, those kinds of things. So at Airtable, I've seen an evolution of, so initially the panels were all, so the focus areas was agreed on. However, we didn't have detailed rubrics until very recently. And that came about because again, our scale, and we had to really standardize it. And the debris were not enough of a standardization across the multiple groups that were emerging within engineering. At Cloudera, it was quite different in that each, it was somewhat, it depended on the engineering manager, the hiring manager a lot. And so over there, the standardization happened at the hiring manager level, and it became more of a, how do you standardize across that particular group? And that had pros and cons in terms of what a candidate of one group might we had to put in some improvements in place so that a candidate of one group could also operate on another group and like that group welcomes them with confidence. Right. So we talk about, I think like a lot of this involves training the interviewers and sometimes like training the hiring managers, right? And especially for interviewers, like sometimes the interviewers need to shadow multiple sessions and then learn about the whole interview, interview skill sets before they become, hey, I can be the interviewer for this like particular panel. I'm like curious about like sometimes engineers are like, I just come in and want to code and then develop product. I don't want to do the interview. And as the company grow, there are times it's just like, we cannot find enough interviewers to do the interview. How do you encourage the interviewers, the engineers to interview? Vinita, maybe you can take this first. Yeah. So we haven't had too much of an uphill battle in my experience because engineers care about who they work with. So they do welcome participation or their own participation in it. One of the things that might be is that there's apprehension. So training goes a long way. The other part is that you do have an off, you can offer different modes of interviewing. So do you want to be part of the phone screen or the take-home or the on-site, different focus areas? Typically, what I've found is engineers would prefer to pick a particular topic and stay focused on that from candidate to candidate. That also helps them calibrate for their own question and their way of asking the question. And lastly, I would say like, you know, acknowledging their 
their, the time that they put in, putting a cap on the number of interview working out, uh, interview hours, taking into consideration that they have to also spend time to write things out and so on. Got it. I'm going to actually say we've taken the very extreme approach of saying, why is it, why would you make it optional? Everyone is required to do interviews. We don't require them right away. We want people to onboard successfully without worrying about that. We want them to get to know our company and be able to talk about it. Um, so typically it's six months to a year before they join. But I actually think that it's a potential problem if you allow people to self-select because then you get the you get the people who are most enthusiastic about the company and sort of your best cheerleaders interviewing, which which sounds great. But then they're also taking that time away from their day-to-day -day work and maybe they're going to suffer on the performance review side because they haven't been able to do as much engineering work. So I think it's, I think it's like very important to spread that around to everyone and not make it a purely optional opt-in thing. Though I will second, you should absolutely have maximums. Ours used to be four a week, which was really heavy. And that's part of the reason we had to make it mandatory is we needed every hand on deck. Yeah, I think that's a very, very good point. And now I don't think that like everyone will make a very good interviewer, right? When it comes right, like sometimes like do you, when you bring people in, do you say, hey, is this a good communicator that uh, does the candidate will actually have like interviewer like traits, right? Because for some of the candidates that, well, for some of the interviewers, they, be, they may be a little bit shy. They may be a little bit uh, of like, you know, like not paying too much attention on the interviewer part. Well, interviewing isn't an inborn trait any more than being a good engineer is an inborn trait. It can be learned. And so I, I reject the belief that there, that there are people incapable of becoming good interviewers. There are people who stalwartly refuse <laughs> to become good interviewers. I will acknowledge that. And sometimes you have to figure out a solution for that. I've absolutely had to tell people, like, your job is to be nice. Like, you need to make people feel comfortable and that is your job. You are not their adversary. You're actually their, their biggest proponent in this moment. You're trying to give them the best possibility to succeed. So I've literally had to tell engineers like very basic things about like how to be friendly to others. But again, I think that is actually a really valuable skill for them to learn and to evolve. And I do not believe that you, that you should, for us anyway, we're not going to hire people who don't have the ability to at least learn that skill over time. I think part, a lot of it is uh, interviewing is part of the engineering culture. So who you hire is also who you make your future interviewers. So I'd say that if you're watching out for people who do care about the larger company, who do care and who you know, have put in an effort to improve their communication skills and build that over time, then that's going to also reflect in interviewing. To Kat's point, it is important that engineering managers and hiring managers consistently emphasize that what we're looking for is we want to find what the candidate's strengths are rather than seek out all their negatives. If you're on a hunt for that, then that in itself is going to be the candidate is going to feel judged and nobody performs well under those circumstances. For sure. I mean, if I'm a candidate on the other side of the table, I will feel like, hey, the interview session is a collaborative session, right? It's more like working with a future colleague rather than, oh, I'm being judged all the way throughout the process. Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. 
These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. So speaking of the interviewer panels, I'm curious that do you have like one panel per hiring team or do you have like a shared panel across the entire org or or team? Catherine, maybe you you want to go first? Yeah, I mean... We do centralized hiring, and I feel pretty strongly that there's a lot of benefits to it. So what we have is a shared interviewer resource across the entire engineering org, so across all sort of 300 roles that we have. And then we have senior leaders who are designated as hiring managers, but again, they're mostly hiring into a general pool of individuals that we will then match to teams. This is a little bit different for particular senior roles. So if I'm hiring a director, I might actually be the hiring manager for it, but I can still have, I don't necessarily have only my team doing that interviewing and I would actually potentially leverage other hiring managers. It has an obvious downside that, you know, if you're hiring someone to a general pool, you maybe have less ability to advocate for, oh, this is a T-shaped candidate, but I think they'll work really well on my team. So it does require everyone in that position to be aware of what teams exist at the company and what kind of strengths and weaknesses might play in those different spots. You know, there might be some teams that really do well with systems interviewer, people who are really good at systems. Other teams might do really good with data engineers. And so there is some need to, to do that, but it allows so much standardization and also means that the teams that are on fire aren't asked to then take on the extra load of getting themselves not on fire, which I think is a really important benefit. So I do have a follow-up question there, like in terms of the the matching process, right? And we all know that time to hire is like a measurement, like very important. Like that some candidates only in the market for like two to four weeks, right? Once those the time's gone, the candidate's gone from the market. And adding a team matching process in between definitely adds the time there. So is there any tips on how you can match that process to make it very efficient? Well, for us, we extend the offer simultaneously with team match and the team match can potentially happen after they arrive at the company. So it's a little bit candidate preference. So for very senior engineers who have a very particular skill set, they might need to match before they join. But but otherwise, we actually do a post-hiring team match process. And this is something you can get away with when you have a lot of open headcount and less so when you have very little open headcount. I see. Vinita, what about the, the, the panel process from your Yeah. So at Airtable, the only streams that we have are based on skill sets, so full stack, front end, or back end. And so you, your interview panels themselves will be based off of that. The matching happens at the start. So right from the sourcing, we try and decide which team is a candidate interested in and the team is also is a good fit. This is based on like our priority of recs. But this isn't a tight match right at the beginning. Over the course of the interviews, especially sometimes, you know, there are a few recs, all those recs get filled up by the time the interview, like the on-site is done. So either for that reason or the candidate's preference changes over time, we can revisit the team matching thereafter. And so we do have a good system in place. Like we have understandings with the different groups and the recruiters involved to be able to do these quick they understand when a team has openings and they can move people around pretty quickly. So to your point, yes, we try not to 
spend any time as part of that. I see. So it seems like in this case, the candidate have some indications or hints on which team he or she would be on, right? And in Catherine's case, it's just like, if I were a candidate, I have no idea which team I'm going to, but I know that I'm going, it's going to be like one of the engineering teams like within Fred Iron Health. And then only until like, oh, I passed the interview, then I can pick and choose. Yeah, and I have to say like things change really fast. So an opening that exists the day you started interviewing may not exist the day your offer is extended. And so that that is part of the equation here too, is that you know when things change rapidly, you need to be able to adapt rapidly. Got it, got it. So what are some of the key metrics that you are looking at or you, you keep track of to measure the efficiency uh, of the hiring process that you have? Vinitha? Yeah. Oh, so I'd say, you know, like with anything to do with measurement, the sooner you start, the better. So for example, time in every stage of the pipeline. And so this is so that we can keep improving our own efficiency, diversity stats, again, at every stage of the pipeline, interviewer scores themselves so that we can see how, like, what's the average score that an interviewer gives? And is that higher or lower compared to other interviewers? You can do this even by question. And so this also enables you to give quantitative feedback to different interviewers. Got it. Kathleen, what about Fred Iron Health? Yeah, I mean, that all sounds right. I think just to elaborate on the, the sort of the funnel metrics, totally agree about looking at diversity at every stage. And, and one of the things you're looking here for here is just the drop-off between every stage. So you want to see volume, but you also want to see drop-off and you want to see drop-off by sort of demographic factors as well. And that's an important indicator. Mm -hmm. So sometimes like we focus a lot on the engineering side of the house, right? And then our partners are also recruiting, right? And uh, do you have any thoughts or like, like kind of ratios on like, hey, how many recruiters do I need, right? Or like how many sources or coordinators like do I need in the organization? Like maybe there's a magic ratio between recruiter and uh, number of openings. I'm just curious, like how you think about this. Well, all recruiters are not created equal. <laughs> I, I think that this is actually the thing that you're trying to adjust for with your metrics. If you see that you are unable to bring in into the top of your funnel, then you probably need more sourcers. If you find people lingering in different stages of the funnel, then it might mean either that you don't have enough capacity to interview or that you don't have enough basically candidate lead support in order to be able to schedule interviews. If you're losing a lot of people at the end, you know, maybe you don't have enough recruiters to close, or maybe there's something wrong with your process. So I don't think there's a magic ratio because people are different and situations are different, but I do think this is where your metrics can help you. Yep. I'd say something similar also that to a certain extent, it depends on the variety of profiles you're looking for. So in this quarter, for example, our focus is senior full stack engineers. So then it's that one sourcer can just stay dedicated on that profile and generate a whole bunch of leads. Versus if I need both backend and full stack of different levels, then that just makes the matrix more complex and then they're going to spread themselves thin. So you might want to just spread it across two sources. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, in the remote world, right? How do remote changes like, like everything that we, we just talked about here in terms of the process, the efficiency and all that, how does it impact? I love the remote world. I think that when it started, we were all very trepidatious, like how we'll be able to evaluate people. Cause we are, we are not a fully remote company and we weren't even particularly hybrid before this. And I think there was a lot of worry. How will I evaluate people? 
there are some interviews that frankly do still suck when you want to be able to whiteboard a design diagram and you don't have the right tools that can be really hard but there's a lot of advantages i've loved you know Vinitra mentioned the being able to spread something over two days instead of one day the ability to not have to have candidates fly in you know i think that there's actually been a ton of advantages in fact you know people getting sick and being able to swap them out easily like it's I'm actually trying, currently trying to figure out how we, how much of this we can keep as we go back to in-person. Yeah, we put together some prep docs for the candidates themselves to help them because while we might have gotten the practice by now of interviewing people remotely, they might not yet be there. So it's the more of the what to expect, so to speak. And also, of course, always audiovisual issues, like technical issues, you know, what do you do and the these things happen. So just having backups and helping them prep ahead of time. Cool. And I think we are at time and then we have a, a couple of questions coming in from the audience. And thank you so much, Catherine and Vinitra. It's a great conversation. I learned quite a lot from this. Patrick's. Yeah, in incredible conversation. We, we had a few questions come in from the audience. The first one, who owns the top of the funnel? Is it the hiring manager or the people team? And this comes from Rajesh Agarwal. So in our case, we recruiting does own top of the funnel. However, there is a, for every new job rec that we put out, a job description that we put out, we do have a calibration session, a, you know, a discussion between the sourcers and the hiring manager to really get precise on the kind of profile that we're looking for. Is, is that the same for you, Kat? Yeah, I'd say agreed, but then I'll also say that the hiring manager is somewhat responsible for holding recruiting accountable. So there's a give and take there, but definitely recruiting owns filling the funnel. And I'll add to that to say that one of the biggest success that we've gotten, like really be, been able to scale is to give that feedback, like re have really tight feedback loops with your recruiters and sources and build a really trusting relationship across that. Yeah, I second that. I, I do think the trust and the collaboration between the recruiting team and the hiring managers are critical to this. For example, the top of funnel, like sometimes the hiring managers will need to jump in and look at, hey, how did you actually write that email that gets sent out to the candidates, right? If we tweak uh, a few words here and there and then make it more technical, maybe it's more appealing to the engineering like audience, right? So it, it is a collaboration between those two. Quick follow-up question about the mechanisms of those feedback loops. Is, so are you, is it regular meetings? I guess, what's the mechanism that you introduced to, to keep that consistent? Yeah, we do have regular things. And I found that most tactical things can be discussed asynchronously, actually, to say like, hey, what do you think about this candidate and so on. The more interesting discussions are, one, observations of what sources and recruiters are observing about the market and so that we can react quickly to it. Secondly is inefficiencies. I think like a bulk of the discussions we've been having lately is like, can we tweak this? Can we tweak that? And it's always a dialogue. Yeah, huge plus one to that. And I'd say we also do QBRs that do focus around those like metrics and those funnels so that, you know, you've got the kind of regular touch points for the like, how can we sort of incrementally improve? And then you have these occasional big picture snapshots of like, are we where we need to be and what do we have to change? I think like the name of the game is predictability. And so, especially when it comes to metrics and scale, because everything is a month or two delayed out, like any improvement you make now, is, it's going to take some time to manifest. So being able to predict what your end results are and scaling back from that to make the improvement ahead of time. That's so true, the, the long arc of the feedback loop there. One more quick question, Kat, this is more specific to some of the processes that you were sharing specific to Flatiron. How do you mitigate a candidate who may be 
feel like, so I think like the person is like, if somebody's priority is the manager, that's important to them as part of the decision-making criteria, how do you mitigate maybe that consideration through your process? Is that like an objection or thing that you deal with ahead of time? I think somebody was curious to know, like, if that's an important consideration and maybe, and that shifts throughout the process, how do you manage that concern sometimes? Yeah, I mean, interestingly, that's actually one that I haven't heard a lot. What I hear more is, especially with senior candidates, like, hey, I really have this technical skill and I want to make sure that there's a project that's appropriate for me. So we do to some extent, like we try to suss that out early in terms of the candidates and understand. A lot of candidates actually love the idea that they get to kind of shop around. So it's actually a selling point in many cases. But for candidates who really want to be like sort of put somewhere, then we'll do that selling process rapidly at the end once we've extended an offer. We'll do a rapid couple of reverses. We'll have them pick and and go from there. And typically that only adds, I mean, it's a couple of days turnaround on that. It's, it's usually not that that onerous. Okay, so it still sounds like there's a little bit of like that calibration conversation at the end to make sure that it's a good fit for for them and making that work. Yeah, I mean, if that's the thing they need to know in order to be able to say yes, then like it behooves us to to give them the options, have them meet the managers and make their own decision about, you know, whether this is the right place for them. Great. Thank you. Well, that is all the time that we have for questions. Kang, Vinitra, Kat, thank you three so much for an incredible conversation and sharing your insights here. I know that it's been really effective for our community. So thank you three. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This was great. Awesome. We'd like to give a special thanks to Mesmer, the exclusive accessibility partner of the Engineering Leadership Podcast. Mesmer's AI bots automate mobile app accessibility testing to ensure your app is always accessible to everybody. To jumpstart your accessibility and inclusion initiative, visit mesmerhq.com forward slash ELC. You can also follow the link in our show notes. That's mesmerhq.com forward slash ELC. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure that you click subscribe if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or follow if you're listening on Spotify. And if you love the show, we also have a ton of other ways to stay involved with the engineering leadership community. To stay up to date and learn more about all of our upcoming events, our peer groups, and other programs that are going on, head to sfelc.com. That's sfelc.com. Or you can also follow the link in our show notes. See you next time on the Engineering Leadership Podcast.